morning. Chad introduced himself a few minutes ago as one of the ministers. I'm not one of the ministers. I'm one of your missionaries. And uh, I'm really thankful to be able to be here with you this morning. Uh, I want to I start before we open the Bible by just saying... Uh, how thankful I am to have this opportunity. Uh, thankful that the elders and the pastors have given me an opportunity to preach a few times this last year. Uh, many of you will know that we've been back uh, over this last year because my wife was receiving uh, cancer treatment. And um, we've just been so thankful for the way that we've been uh, welcomed into this church. Our children, my eldest in the, in the bridge and uh, the opportunities to preach, the friendships we've had, all sorts of things like that. We want to Make sure we communicate our gratitude. We're actually leaving this Wednesday to go back to the United Kingdom. And uh, so you can pray for us. I, I wrote down a couple things you can pray for us. First of all, pray for some of the logistics and the things like that as we're flying back. We have uh, an overnight flight on Wednesday. Um, I know that I am going back to one of my cars that isn't taxed, so I have to tax it so I can drive it on the road. And to the other of my cars that I just found out this week, the battery's dead. So I'm going to have to get that fixed as soon as we get back. So um, you can pray for all of those little things. And, uh, and then also just pray for the church we're going back to. And, and uh, the, the lockdowns and things like that lasted a lot longer in the UK than they did here. And it's only in the last month or so that they've actually been able to meet together any day of the week but Sunday. So we're going back to um, kind of a different place where they're just coming out of a lot of the, the pandemic restrictions. So please pray for that. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 48. I didn't know if Chad was going to say anything about the fact that he was going to start Jonah next week. And if he did, I thought... I get up and say, well, will you turn in your Bibles to Jonah 1 and see how he responded? But uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 48 this morning. So if you'd open your Bibles uh, to the 48th Psalm, we've been reading through the Psalms. And, and so many of the songs you'll recognize that we sing are based in some way on the Psalms. I love that verse we had up there during the last uh, song from Psalm 65, where it talks about the, the widows and the orphans. I actually have a friend who's a minister uh, who was converted. He's an orphan. He was converted because in the orphanage, somebody gave, gave him that verse. And he started reading the Bible because of that verse and was converted. And, uh, and, and the Psalms are such an encouragement that way, such a blessing. And we're going to read Psalm 48 this morning. Before I read it, though, let me ask the Lord to help us uh, as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we come to your word, and we know that... Uh, it, we need your spirit to enliven us, to open our ears, uh, to open our eyes, to help us to comprehend and to understand and then to apply your word to us. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we read your word and as we hear it preached that you, you would help us to read, mark, learn, and, and inwardly digest your word by the power of your spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen. I know usually you read from the CSB, uh, I'm reading from the ESV, so, so there may be some differences between what you see in front of you and what I'm reading. I uh, just wanted to let you know that before I start reading. Psalm 48, uh, we're going to read the whole psalm together. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, 
within her citadels, made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Thus ends this reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. Recently, I heard a friend preach on this passage uh, not too long ago, a couple months ago, and he used an illustration to describe this psalm that I thought was, was really help, helpful. Maybe some of you have um, visited the United Kingdom before. Maybe some of you haven't. If you, if you visit the United Kingdom... If you visit any of the the queen's palaces or homes or castles or anything like that, you can uh, always tell if she's there in the building uh, when you come to them. If if she's present, instead of the the Union Jack, what we think of as the the British flag, there is a a royal standard flying. Um, And... Uh, if she's somewhere else on any of these buildings, then the Union Jack, the British flag, is going to be flying. And there's, there's one royal standard for most of the United Kingdom, and then Scotland, because they like to do everything their own way, has a different royal standard of Scotland when she is there in Scotland. And so if you visit Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle or Sandringham House in, in Norfolk or things like that, you'll see uh, this royal standard that's used in most places. And if you go to Holyrood and Edinburgh, or, or if you go up to, not, you can't really get close to the house in Balmoral, but if you were able to, you'd, you'd see the Scottish royal standard. Uh, and uh, the royal standard will also fly on a, on a yacht if she's on it, or a train, or a plane, it'll be on it, or helicopter, or on her cars. And it's uh, the mark of, of the monarch. Uh, in fact, when she attends the Palace of Westminster, where Parliament meets, uh, especially when the, the state opening of parliament every year, they take the, the flag off and they replace it uh, on the pinnacle there with her royal standard while she is there, which is a, an honor to her because parliament leads there, but it's a, an honor to her. And the royal standard is, is uh, maybe you've seen it before. It's got, it's got four quadrants. Two of them have uh, kind of three lions. It's red with three golden lions on it. And, and then one has... Uh, the Scottish symbol, which is a, a golden field with a red lion on it. And then one's this little blue field with a harp on it that, that is the Irish symbol. And, and that is her royal standard. And, and the royal standard, interestingly, even when the monarch dies, is never flown at half-mast. The national flag will be. The royal, the royal standard is never flown at half-mast. 
because there's always a sovereign on the throne. That's why when, whenever the queen dies, the thing that you will hear is, uh, you know, the queen is dead, long live the king, because there's always a monarch, always a sovereign on the throne. And it, it's a great illustration for this psalm as we look through it, because this psalm is a banner waving saying, the Lord is king in Zion. The Lord is in Zion. This is a, a kingly psalm. There's, there's several psalms that are like this. this you, you might immediately think of, of Psalm 96, 97, 98, 99, but, but this is a kingly psalm. The, Zion, his people are his dwelling place. And when we, when we read this psalm, when we sing this song, it's a, it's a banner saying, he's here. He's in the midst of us. Think, think of, maybe you know the verse in Song of, song, song of Songs 2, in, in verse 4, where uh, the bride says about the bridegroom, uh, he, he brought me to his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. And, and that's the idea here. God is present. Now, now, this psalm talks about, about Zion in a couple senses. And in one sense, in some of the verses, it's very clear that it's talking about a specific place. It's talking about uh, Mount Zion, a, a mountain in Israel. And uh, it's the mountain where Abraham took Isaac uh, to sacrifice him. It's the mountain where after David drove out the Jebusites, uh, his son Solomon built the temple. Uh, and, and, and it's that mountain which is known by the name of Zion. Uh, but uh, it is also uh, a symbol of God's dwelling in the midst of his people. The, the temple, that mountain, it, it is throughout the Old and the New Testaments, this picture of God's presence uh, with his people, of, of the people that he has made, that I'm your God and you're my people. And so it also becomes a shorthand. Uh, it's, it refers to that mountain, but all the way through the Old Testament, Zion becomes a shorthand that re refers not just to the mountain, but actually to Israel, to the people of God itself. And uh, we can see this actually in this psalm. In verse 2, it, it begins not just to talk about the mountain, but in verse 2, it begins to talk about the joy of all the earth. Well, you know, the mountain in Jerusalem can't actually be seen in all the earth. There's, there's something about God's people where he's dwelling that is a joy in all the earth. And then in verse 3, Zion is no longer de defined just by the physical mountain, but it's actually the place where God makes himself known as a fortress, where, where he is a stronghold, where he is a protector. And so we begin to see this. And then in the New Testament, it's actually clearer. It's, it's, the Zion of the Psalms is a picture of God's church. Hebrews 12 makes this the clearest. It's it's been making this case showing us the hope that we have in God, that it's more than just a physical mountain. And we come to Psalm 12, or Hebrews 12, rather, and, and uh, the author says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of, of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You, you could look at Revelation. You see the same picture that Jerusalem is actually the people of God. It's, it's the people who are dwelling there. There's a 
famous hymn by John Newton. Uh, Not Amazing Grace. I know that's probably his most famous hymn, but there's another famous hymn where he quotes actually this psalm and Psalm 87 and several other places when he says, uh, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode on the rock of ages founded. What can shake thy sure repose with salvation's walls surrounded? Thou mayst smile at all thy foes. And so this, this psalm, this song shows us and tells us about uh, the, the blessings of God's church. It, it tells us about the fact that he dwells within us. It tells us, Zion, you are glorious. And the reason is because God dwells in the midst of you. And so the blessing that you have is that, that God is with you, which is a refrain of whole scriptures. And, and then it tells us, because of that, a few things to do. But most centrally, it tells us praise and gratitude are the response. We open the psalm, don't we, with this praise of the Lord. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So we want to look at, at this this morning, and I want us to see a few things. The first thing I want us to see is that God dwells in the midst of his people. I've, I've already touched on this. I had the opportunity last week at, at another church to preach on on Acts 18, which is the passage where Paul is, is uh, in Corinth preaching, and he, he seems like he's about ready to leave, and God sent, comes to him in a vision and says, no, stay here. I still have my people in this city, and, and don't worry. You're not going to be hurt. You're, you're going to be okay. And the encouragement he gives him is, I am with you. And it's actually, if you begin to read through the scriptures, probably the greatest and most frequent encouragement that God gives to his people, I am with you. Everything else is uncertain, but I am with you. And we see something in this that ought to humble us. Uh, the, the psalm seems to be written in the wake of some sort of great victory. We see the picture of the victory, especially in verses 4 through 7, where it's talking about all the kings coming and the ships and Tarshish being blown around and things like that. And it's not actually clear whether this was an actual physical battle that happened at some point that the psalmist wrote this in response to. Uh, it may well have been. Some people will point to um, two Chronicles, Second Chronicles 20, where uh, it actually talks about Jehoshaphat going down with ships to Tarshish and destroying their navy. Um, it could be kind of a metaphorical picture of a battle that occurred. It could be pointing maybe to uh, the, the worldwide conspiracy against God's people that Psalm 2 talks about. It could be pointing to any number of things. But the, the psalm describes it as looking back on uh, a great victory. And, and when we come to battle, maybe not a physical battle, most of us probably haven't fought a physical battle, but when we come to some sort of battle in our lives or a physical battle, when we think about history, um, we have a a couple tendencies. Uh, when we're defeated, we have this tendency of finding somebody to blame. You know, a, a scapegoat. Certainly not us, because we weren't the cause for failure. It must have been someone or something else. Uh, you see this if you have children, because every time there's a breakdown in relationship, and all of a sudden you hear them yelling in the next room, uh, nobody ever comes to you and says, it was my fault. 
it was always somebody else's fault. You know, that's, that's the way that we, we go. But, but then when there's a victory like we see here, um, there's a couple responses. We, sometimes we take the credit, because that's really great, isn't it? If there's a victory and you're able to take the credit for it and you can get all the praise. Sometimes we're not in that sort, sort of situation. So we find a hero that we can give all the praise to. So we think of things in history, like you know, the Battle of Valley Forge. And there were a lot of people who fought that, but who won the battle? It was George Washington. You know, we know exactly who it was. Or, uh, you know, you think of a battle like Waterloo, and, and who was it? Well, it was Duke of Wellington. And uh, we think of other things like this. Uh, sometimes that's actually deserved. You know, you think about those two examples, and those men deserve a lot of credit for winning those battles. Sometimes it isn't. But we don't just do this in history. We do it in the church. We make... Uh, heroes or celebrities and it's amazing if you've ever I don't know I don't know if it happens here as much the UK has a lot more used bookshops there's a lot more they've been printing books a lot longer than we have um, and so there's a lot of used bookshops and you'll go into them and you, especially Christian bookshops it's amazing the number of Bibles you will find that are a hundred years old that you know J.C. Ryle signed or uh, Spurgeon signed or whoever else like like they'd written the book you know I mean it's uh, it's funny how we tend to make these heroes of, of men we in some way make them heroes and and that's not all bad because the scriptures give us heroes of the faith they paint us pictures of the lives of men that we're meant to emulate whose examples we're meant to follow you know James says you need to have faith when you pray. He says just like Elijah did when he prayed that it would rain after three and a half years of drought. He gives us that example. Or Hebrews, I just read Hebrews 12, but all of Hebrews 11 is telling us about people who, who had faith, whose example we should Im imitate. Uh, there's lots of others. But there's a difference when the scriptures do this. They show us these heroes, but they show us these heroes with all sorts of warts. <laughs> and all sorts of problems. And they don't make it a hagiography where there's some sort of person to, to worship. When there are great victories that these men have, the scriptures continually show us that it wasn't the men who earned the victory. It was actually God who earned the victory in their lives. It was the great God they trusted in who brought the victory. So we look at people like Abraham and David, and, and how many stories are there of them being pulled out of trouble? most of the time of their own making because they sinned in some way, shape, or form. And, and the men of faith that we are meant to admire, both in, in our, our history, in our own churches, and in the scriptures, are to be admired, and, and I don't mean just men of faith, women of faith as well, the people of faith that we look around and we see, are meant to be admired for their reliance on God and for the work that he does in their lives. We look at them and we say, God did something amazing there. We can trust in that God too, because God does that. And we can look to them. They are not the men and women who bring victory, but the men and women who experience the victory that God brings. So um, Christians aren't supposed to be those who, who tell fish stories. You know, we're supposed to be ones who say, I was just sitting in the boat and God just called, caused all the, sheep, all, the, all the fish to just jump in the boat. You know, like the, the stories we see in the gospel. They're the things that are always, I mean, don't say that if it didn't happen. But, but you know, the, the, the reality is we're meant to point to God who does these things. 
And so it might be Jehoshaphat in, in 2 Chronicles 20 in this battle that is won. But the psalm doesn't point us to Jehoshaphat. It might be something else. It actually doesn't point us to who it is because we don't know who it is. This is a psalm that in victory sings the glory and the praise of God. The glory and praise of, of God's people, but only because God is in the midst of them. And God brings victory. And so it opens by telling us, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The church is glorious. And it's because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. There's times when the church looks really weak. When it looks downtrodden. Uh, but she's, she's glorious, not because she looks weak, but because she is something that God created. Because she's something he made by his own hand. He took dead and brought them to life. He, he's done something remarkable. A people who were worshiping stone and wood and metal and everything else. And now they're alive and they worship the living God because God did something. The, the church, God's people, are people who've stood longer than any empire. And, and they've been weak, but they've been renewed and refreshed again and again. They've been sore-pressed, but they've never been defeated. But all of this isn't because the church is so great. The church is glorious, but it's because of what God has done. This psalm wants us to see. And because of this, the church is meant to be a house of praise, a place where the Lord, her God, is praised. And, and there's two things this psalm shows us, and I think I've actually said this before at one point in preaching here, and I think it's pretty uh, basic principle for all of Scripture. There's two things we praise the Lord for. We praise the Lord because of who He is, and then we also praise the Lord because of what He's done. And we see that in this psalm. And I can tell you that's a biblical principle that you'll see all through the Scriptures. It's something you ought to see in your own life. You ought to praise and thank the Lord, first of all, because of who He is. When you come to prayer each day, you ought to praise the Lord for who He is, for His glory, for His strength, for His goodness, for all of these things. But then, second of all, praise the Lord for what He has done. Done for you, done for others. And the text gives us these, these two reasons. We praise God because of who he is and because of what he has done. And there's a few ways in this psalm specifically that we see that. It, it shows us that we praise God for who he is and what he has done because he is a great general. He's a great general, as we've already touched on. It's a a story of a people who've seen victory. And the story of the church, the story of the whole of the scriptures is a people who've seen victory. It starts out really badly. In Genesis 3, uh, the people that God created sin. Uh, they're totally separated from God. They don't have any hope. They're dead in their sins. They've been told you're going to die. And that's pretty much the end of, end of things. And then right away, God says, but I'm going to do something to save you. And that's the story of the scriptures. God is a God who pulls victory out of the mouth of defeat. God's people are often hard-pressed by temptation. You know, James tells us that we're going to suffer. We're going to have trials. It's an inevitable part of the Christian life. It's going to be hard. Jesus told his disciples uh, that... 
um, you know, they, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. In John 16, he says, you're going to face tribulation. That's being in the church. But tribulation and trial, this psalm wants to show us, isn't just something that you kind of slog through, just trying to get to the other side, just, you know, bedraggled, and I just got through. It's something that we actually have victory in and victory over in Christ when we face temptation or trial or hardship. It's, it's something that God uses to accomplish his purpose within us. So first, we see uh, that uh, we have already experienced victory because God is great general. He, 2,000 years ago, his son came and died, and he conquered sin and death, and he rose from the grave. The one thing that we can't do anything about, he has done something about, and he's conquered it, and he has been victorious. And, and that victory was something that happened. And so when we come and we trust in Christ, we trust in the fact that he has died already, the death that I deserve to die because of my sins, and that's completed. And if we're Christians, if we are the church, then he's a great general because there's this victory in our lives already accomplished. And then that victory is something that isn't just something we've experienced in the past, but it's then something that we are experiencing in the present. It's, it's something where he is, uh, he is sanctifying us. Uh, he is, is giving us victory, and, and we sometimes need to be reminded of this. I, I don't know what sins it is that you, on a daily basis, struggle with uh, in, in your own lives. I, I don't know whether it's um, you really yell at your children or your spouse a lot. You uh, have a a great degree of anxiety. You struggle with trust. You struggle with whatever it is. Maybe it's, uh, you know, the statistics tell us a lot of us struggle with pornography. We struggle with lust. We struggle with all sorts of things. These are all sorts of struggles, and sometimes they feel like things that we can't beat. And the reality is the scriptures tell us they're already beaten if we come to Christ. And, and we live out that experience of victory. But then it's also a victory that is accomplished already that we're looking forward to. Uh, we found out this week uh, a, a dear friend of ours who's 38. Her oldest two children are going into second grade and fourth grade this past week. And we've known for about a year that she has a very rare form of, of lung cancer. Uh, it, it is terminal, and we didn't know how long she would have, and she got some tests done this week, and it's so many small microtumors all over her brain that they can't even count them, and, and they said probably when you get to this point, you're looking at six months to live, and it's, uh, it's been really hard thinking about them and, and knowing them and, and uh, just knowing what they're going through, and, uh, and yet as scary as that is for her husband... As scary as it is that she's watching her children go to their first day of school. As scary as it is, sometimes thinking, how much hope do I have? She knows that there's a God who's conquered sin and death. There's no question that there is a hope in heaven. We have a a victory that is incredible. And God, as we've said, it's who he is. He is a great general. He is victorious. But he, he's worked that in our lives as the church. And so we praise him for this. God also is to be praised because he is love and joy. And he's a, a source of love 
and joy. We had a series just a couple months ago uh, for about four weeks here where we were looking at the goodness of God. And, and Chad took us to Exodus uh, 36, I think the first week was where we, where we looked as we were looking at the goodness of God, his steadfast love that endures forever. That's not only found in, in Exodus 34, not 36. It's not only found in Exodus 34, it's Psalm 136. I mean, it's like eight or ten places in the Psalms you see that phrase. And Joel and Jonah and Numbers and Lamentations and all of these other places. And the God who is love. The definition of who God is that the Bible gives us is that he is gracious, he's merciful, he's abounding in steadfast love, he, he loves to relent from, from judgment, from destruction. That is who he is. And what this text is telling us is that love and joy is dwelling in our midst. It's, it's right in the midst of us. It's flavoring everything that we are and do and experience. It, it did it in the Old Testament. It was this mountain right in the middle of the nation. And before Israel had entered into the promised land, it was this tabernacle, this tent in the middle of the people as they moved around. And, and then the New Testament tells us that, that as we uh, as a church are scattered and spread out now all over the world, it's the Spirit who lives in our hearts. And certainly that's true for us individually. The Bible tells us it's, it's not just us individually that he lives in, but he lives in us as a people. So when we come together, he's, he's here with us. We pray at the beginning that he would be at work within us, helping us to understand his word and applying it to us and giving us a hope in it. It's because he is here. His grace and mercy and steadfast love, I told you he's with us. And what an encouragement that is. Well, that shows up so many times in the scriptures. We read, Paul writes that, that we're faithless, but he's faithful. That's one of the ways we see that he is with us. He, he tells us to persevere. But when he tells us he's always with us, he's never going to forsake us, never leave us. He tells us, you can persevere because I'm persevering with you. You can endure because I've already endured and am enduring with you. And I'm gracious and I'm merciful to people who've rebelled and rejected me. He is a righteous, holy, just God. But he still is able to make right those who are wicked rather than punish them. His grace and his mercy have turned those who, who should be scared to death of him because we're sinners. We know our sin and we know that he punishes sin. And, and so we should be scared to death of him because we're his enemies. And instead of punishing us, he has made us his people. So we rejoice in his judgments and in his righteousness and in his justice. And so we read at Christmas every year with joy that the increase of his government will know no end. Well, if you are a criminal, the strength of the government is not something that encourages you. And we're criminals. We're rebels. The strength of the government shouldn't be a joy, but it is because God's grace has transformed us so much that the law that was something that was an accusation against us is now a safe haven that protects us and strengthens us because God is love and joy. And so he takes those things that are fear and, and danger and makes them a blessing. And so we praise him. And then we also see that God is a fortress of protection. 
and and it's who he is and then it's also what he does for us read in verses 12 and 13 with me he says walk about zion go around her number her towers consider well her ramparts go through her citadels Uh, this is actually a picture uh, from nehemiah at the end of the book of Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah was the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the, the king who had destroyed Israel, and Nehemiah is sent back to rebuild the walls. And as you get uh, to a point in Nehemiah where the walls are finished, God tells them to go in two processions around the walls of Jerusalem, opposite directions. And they go uh, around the walls, walking counter to one another, uh, going all the way around, passing one another, and what they're doing is they're inspecting the walls, inspecting the towers, checking on them to make sure that they're strong. But then also it uses the same word in Nehemiah that's used here. The ESV translates it in verse 13, consider well her ramparts. And so they're not just inspecting them, but they're considering them. They're checking that they work, but they're also enjoying a job well done, something that is strong, that will stand the test of time, that is firm, that is powerful. And it's something that would be normal after a victory, after a battle. You've won the battle. Your walls have withstood the attack. And so you go around and you inspect them. Where do we need to repair them, fix them? But we're also like, wow, this wall saved us. This is amazing. This fortress was great. It was an after-action report. When I was in the Navy, uh, we have these um, guns. They look like R2-D2. They're They're white. Uh, but they look like R2-D2 from, from Star Wars. They're tall and with a little dome on top, and they're, they're uh, called Seawiz, which is an abbreviation of close-in weapon, weapon system. Uh, it's, it's a tiny little gun sticking out of it that has six barrels. It's a Gatling gun, and it, it fires 6,000 rounds per minute. So that's 100 rounds a second it fires. Um, and it fires these bullets that are... Uh, uranium, depleted uranium. So they're really one of the heaviest metals. And its, its sole purpose is it's the last line of defense. When a missile is coming at the ship, it, if, if every other protection has, uh, if it's gotten past every other protection, it shoots it out of the sky. And so we do all of these practices. We, we don't actually shoot missiles at our ships, but we do things that allow us to practice. So we're shooting things out of the sky, and then afterwards you see uh, what you attacked and you look at it and you have an after action report and you say wow i can't believe how these bullets just tore that thing apart and and it's amazing and it's encouraging this defense was amazing and it will protect us and this is something the scriptures call us to do in the old testament you see god's people like nehemiah doing this with physical walls but then the new testament shows us this so much with spiritual battles Look back on our trials. Look back on our temptations. Look back on the the battles we fight spiritually. Look to the might of God who sustained us. Look at the the weaponry he gives us. Go read Ephesians 6 and look at the the armor and the the sword and the the shield and, and all of these things he's given you. Look at how it protected you. But also look back and say, God, you did that. You brought me through. You saved me. It's who he is. He's a fortress. But it's what he's done. You know, Martin Luther's favorite um, psalm was Psalm 46. 
And, uh, and actually, a lot of the reformers who were constantly embattled, it was one of their favorite, favorite psalms. And, and you, you can see uh, how helpful it is because he wrote a really famous hymn that's based on Psalm 46. And you probably all know it, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, an ever-present help in trial. And so we marvel at what he's done. And, and the amazing thing about this psalm is it tells us these things about God that are worthy of praise, who he is and what he's done. And then in like the last verse or two, it gives us an application. So I don't even have to come up with an application. The psalm just tells me what it is. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels. That, you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God. Forever and ever, he will guide us. Uh, you come to the end of verse 12 and 13, and you might expect uh, that you would say, so that you can praise him more, so that you can feel safer, so that you can have encouragement in trial, so that you can have all of these things. But no, he says, so that you can tell the nation. We are counted blessed, he tells us, because he dwells in the midst of us. And, and we're able, if we're members of God's church, if we're members here of grace, or if you're members of another church, we're, we're able to count our names as a part of God's people, and we see that about ourselves, and, and, and we ought to be humbled by this, because it's not our own might that has given us victory, but we have victory in Christ, and it gives us a certain spiritual pride, pop, proper spiritual pride. We, we're proud that he has done great things in us. We're, we're proud of what he has done. But this ought to be an opportunity for praise, as I said, but also for continued work of redemption in his church. Who do we praise the Lord to? Well, we praise him to him. But we also praise him to our children or the other children. I heard, I think four times this morning, if you're a member, you need to go work with the children. And so now you've heard it five times. If you're a member, you need to go work with the children. Six. Uh, and we do this because they're, they're a part of our church. And we praise him to the next generation. We tell them who he is and what he does and what he has already done. And we're called to tell the next generation. I have a friend who did a lot of work in early church, uh, the early church fathers and the writings. And he said something really interesting. The, the word evangelism wasn't a very common word. It's, it's a biblical Greek word, but it wasn't a very commonly used word in the first three or four centuries of the church. But when you're reading through the church fathers, every time they use the word evangelism, uh, they're actually talking about telling your children about the faith. They're not, they're not talking about when they go out. They do go out. I mean, the church grew rapidly in the first few centuries because they were going out and telling people. But when they talked about passing on the good news, they talked about telling their children about it. And we can miss this because when we talk about evangelism, we think of the things we do when we go out and tell people who aren't in the church, which is right. And I'm not encouraging us not to do that. We need to do those things. And when we talk about our our children, so often we talk about the fact maybe that they're a blessing from the Lord, or we talk about the fact that if we raise a child in the way that is right, like Proverbs says, he, he won't depart from it. And so it becomes often our training of our children is, is all about raising them in this, this path of obedience. And that's what we're doing. 
And what the scriptures, and and that's right, Uh, again, I don't want to say don't raise your children in a path of obedience, but what the scriptures are so often showing us is that the way we do this, the model that the scriptures give us is by pointing them to God, to what he's done, to who he is, and encouraging them to to love him, to praise him for what he's done and who he is, and, and to consider the victory that the Lord has given and to examine the strength of the fortress he's given us. Look, he's given us a family where we love the Lord. What a blessing is that, that he's placed you children in a family where you get to hear the Bible read and you get to come to church and you have friends who have all of these blessings. And Deuteronomy 6 says this. He says, remember the, the God who is one God, who is our God, and, and what he's done. And, and so what do you do if you have children? Well, every morning when you wake up, you tell them uh, about God and what he's done. And then when you go out, you tell them again. And then when you come in, you tell them again. And then when you go to bed, you tell them again. And when you lie down, you tell them again. And when you sit up, you tell them again. And it's, it's this constant refrain. This is who God is. This is what he's done. So we tell our families about it. And we tell the world. And we say, you know what? We are really blessed because God lives with us this morning here. God is with us. We are his people. As we are gathered together, yes, he lives in each one of us, but he is uniquely with us as his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he is here dwelling with us, working in our lives by his word. Our family has experienced this really wonderfully in many times, but especially uh, over the last year, we're members of a congregation in northern England. I don't even remember, three, 4,000 miles away, something like that. Um, but we're also missionaries, so we're supported by quite a few churches all around the country. And uh, this gives us a better opportunity than many to know the blessing of Christian experience and fellowship and the unity of Zion as we visit churches. And we're, we're a part of churches more churches than just the congregation we're uh, members of and and the unity we have in God's victory. And we've seen this, I think, in this last year and the way people have prayed for us. We've we've seen this for many years, the way people have financially supported us. And, And when we visit congregations to talk about what the Lord is doing and and then people have us into their homes. And the number of times we've been in churches where we didn't know anybody, and then all of a sudden we're in somebody's home, and now years later we're still in touch with them, and we're friends from them. And so often we'll see something in somebody's house, and and we'll really like it, and we'll get something like it to take away, or they'll give us something. And we have things around our house. I've never lived in Pennsylvania, but we have this nice little trivet on our table at home that's from Pittsburgh that somebody gave us, and we think about that family every time we use it, and, and we're reminded of how we love them Sometimes people we don't really know all that well are all of a sudden family. But this last year, we've especially seen this here in Houston with Grace and then a couple other churches here. Jackson's been in the boys group on Wednesday night, the bridge. And, and the, way, the way when we first arrived, so many people helped us and the way that we've been discipled, our children have been discipled. And so we're just particularly thankful for the truth in this psalm. Because we are the church and God dwells in us and he is a protection and a fortress and an encouragement and a source of joy and love. And then because of that, he does just great things in our lives. So 
So I would really encourage you to think on this, especially in whatever area you're having trial or trouble, but then respond by saying, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and passing that on to the next generation. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful that we have a great God, that we have a God who is faithful, not a God who, who changes, who we don't know how you'll respond. You show us your character, and then you always act faithfully in accordance with it. And Lord, you have acted so graciously towards us, and we're thankful for this. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us to bring us victory in all of the, the trials, uh, the temptation, the sin, the struggles we have. In Jesus' name, amen.